Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of In the Trenches with Andrew Taylor, yours truly. And in this episode, I interview a man named John Huey. John is a walking legend, and I really enjoy this human being. He's been a teacher and an, edu- and an educator his entire life. He comes out of Albany, Georgia, and you will be able to tell with his beautiful southern drawl. And he's just got a way with words. Uh, he's kind of poetic in nature, and I, I just really enjoy listening to him. I, I think I had a smile on my face just this entire interview, and I think you will too. Um, John has a long history with outdoor leadership. He worked at the Minnesota Outward Bound School in later North Carolina and then served in a, in a, on a, in a board position, I think, internationally for Outward Bound, which took him you know, all over the world. And he just, he loves nature, he loves the outdoors, he loves working with young people, and he's just, a, he's got a lot to teach. And he, he just retired, as he describes in the uh, interview, he's 99% retired, but he's far from slowing down, and he talks about staying young, and all the things that we can do to keep life interesting. So, I hope you inter- enjoy this interview, I had a blast, and um, you know, I've always looked up to John since the day I met him. So please enjoy, and thanks for joining. John <clears throat> Huey, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Doing good, Andrew. Good to hear your voice. Hey, thanks, man. I'm excited to interview you. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to our mutual friend, Josh Watson, and I said, Josh, who should I interview for the podcast? And he said, you've got to interview John Huey before you do anything else. And uh, I agreed right away with him. And uh, so anyway, thanks for being on. You're welcome. I might interview you if you don't watch out. <laughs> I, I think you're going to be a lot more interesting than I would be. So, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot we could start with. And you've got quite a history of, you know, teaching and working in the Army and, um, you know, being a major part of starting Minnesota's Outward Bound. And when I met you, you I met you on the tail end of your career as an educational consultant. Could you just give us a little background on on your history and kind of what you're all about and how you ended up as an educational consultant and working with young people? Sure. Uh, I'm still trying to find out what I'm all about. Like, like a lot of us in this work, I'm a searcher. I've always been a searcher and, uh, and I continue to search for meaning and understanding as, as I continue to grow older. I started out in South Georgia, Albany, Georgia, and I came out of that town and went to Davidson College and then Emory University and the University of California, Santa Barbara, over a number of decades and got my PhD in experiential education at University of California, Santa Barbara, by which time I was almost 40 years old. And during those those 40, first 40 years of my life, uh, my search for meaning and purpose and mission uh, which what it was very hard to define. I mean, I've always been a generalist. I never could figure out what what to specialize in, if anything. I majored in history and English. But I ended up uh, in my 20s at the Minnesota Outward Bound School working on the Bob Pay, P-I-E-H. And Bob became the first real mentor that I really ever had, or at least the most important mentor he was a fully developed human being, about 55 when I met him. I was about 25, and he had founded the Minnesota Outward Bound School, and he, he, he hired me to start in there at the bottom of the ladder as an assistant instructor when I was 25 or so. So I 
dropped out of graduate school at Emory for a while and dove into Outward Bound the following three summers. That was summers of 65, 66, 67. And I knew that I had found my niche. I'd found my calling. I'd found my culture. I'd found my my type of people, adventurous, spirited, hilariously funny people with a great sense of seriousness of purpose. Those two things combined really drew me in. And I love the wilderness and adventure and the impact I saw the Minnesota school up in the Boundary Waters Canoe area having on, on young people. So that's a, a long-winded, not-so-short answer to your first questions. Uh, that's that's kind of how I got started in experiential education, learning by experience, learning by doing, which was very much a contrast to the way I had been educated in South Georgia, which is very traditional, very compartmentalized, and where we were really almost never exposed to the real culture in which we live, tightly segregated, very racist. Uh, and uh, so I, I grew, I, need, I, I needed to break out of that to find the wider world and find my own uh, mission and purpose in, in the wider world. With Outward Bound helped me to do that. How's that for starters? That's a great start. You know, we, we both share a mutual love for Outward Bound. I, I worked at Outward Bound in Costa Rica 15 years ago, and that definitely had an impact on me. Um, for those that don't know, could you talk about what Outward Bound is and also kind of describe what experiential education is? Well, I'll take a shot at it. But by the way, if you were in Costa Rica 15 years ago, we might have crossed paths because I was down there. 15 or 20 or so years ago, doing a reconnaissance for the North Carolina Outward Bound School, which I directed for 20 years, 1977 to 2004. And we, we, have, we, we put programs in place in Costa Rica, mobile programs, and I climbed Chiripo, and I just about uh, gave out of gas uh, due to uh, altitude sickness. I had only about 12 feet. But uh, that wasn't you I saw up there gasping for breath, was it? <laughs> It might have been, man. We were probably both struggling at that point. <laughs> I remember I had to lay down on the path and, and take a few steps and lay down again and again, or lie down, one or the other. Anyway, uh, you asked me to, what, define outward bound, and I, I'll, I'll give you, a, I'll do that briefly. And uh, You know, outward bound started in Great Britain through the influence of Kurt Hahn, a German philosopher educator who fled Nazi Germany. Uh, because he was part Jewish, and he escaped to Nazi Germany in the 30s and was uh, asked by British uh, leaders to start a program for character development uh, for young British merchant marine during World War II, who were dying, they were dying in great numbers in the North Sea, and it was observed that the younger men were giving up, dying, not because they were wounded so much as because they gave up, but they didn't know what resilience, what toughness, what stamina what, that they had inside of them. So out of, while the older, the older uh, merchant marine would survive in the same circumstances. So that, that observation led to Kurt Hans being asked to start a program in the, on the British Isles that uh, worked with younger uh, 16, 17, 18-year-old uh, British youth men in that, at that time young men, to uh, uh, bring out the best parts of their character, resilience, toughness, stamina, endurance, the will to live, especially the will to live. Never was a survival school. wasn't about the, the skills of survival, although that's, has part, that, that, that affects the popular image of it. 
it's always and always has been and still is about evoking the will to live, the strength that we have stored inside us if we can ever discover it. So over the years, from the time that Kurt Hahn founded the first Outward Bound School in Aberdovey, Wales, Outward Bound spread to many other places in Great Britain, and eventually the, wherever the British flag was flying, Outward Bound ended up in that culture, whether it was Hong Kong or uh, uh, um, uh, Canada or uh, uh, any other place where the British Empire uh, had had gone, and uh, it then. But in 1962, it came to the United States through the influence of Josh Minor, who had studied with Kurt Hahn in Great Britain. And Josh was a teacher at Andover, and he brought Outward Bound back from his time with Kurt Hahn uh, in the 1950s and planted it in finally in Colorado in 1962 the first Outward Bound School in the United States, and it spread from Colorado to uh, Oregon and Hurricane Island, Maine, and North uh, uh, Minnesota, and eventually North Carolina and other places. Uh, so that's a, another long-winded short answer to your good question. But what is Outward Bound? It's a, an unfolding character development program that takes young people and today many others besides young people and gives them a carefully designed wilderness experience so that they can discover uh, themselves in the natural world away from all distractions and discover uh, some virtues and qualities that serve very well when you go back home. Resilience, compassion for others, craftsmanship, uh, team, teamwork, and many other uh, values and virtues of that kind. So and that's that's a fantastic description. What what do you think? Um, and you have a PhD in experiential education. What is experiential education, and how do those two correlate? You know, with Outward Bound and, and kind of what shaped your career. Well, experiential education is any enterprise, any educational enterprise, or any experience really, any any activity. That, that enables you to learn by the experience itself. For example, I'm I'm taking a carpentry, a woodworking class right now with my wife. <laughs> I'm trying to build a small table. <laughs> I'm not I'm not reading a book about building a small table. I'm building the table, and that's experiential learning. I have a mentor who's a great teacher. He happens to be from Great Britain, and he's a rock climber, by the way. Uh, and. Uh, uh, He's a, he's a very good teacher. So learning by experience is doing, not talking about doing, or not simply theorizing or thinking or memorizing and all of that. You know, it's, there are a lot of definitions, but, you know, it's learning by and through experience and then reflecting on the experience. And that, John Dewey, the great American educator, was uh, stated it, you know, better than anyone. And basically education is reflection on experience. Experience is only half of it, and the rest of it is reflecting and internalizing and applying what you learn. Now, with regard to Outward Bound, uh, it's obvious that you, if you're going on a, a long wilderness canoe trip or you're going on a, a mountain climbing expedition in Colorado or a sailing expedition in Maine or whatever, you, you, you're going to have an experience. It's going to be a rich, vivid experience, not superficial experience, but a vivid experience. And you're going to be led in Outward Bound by the instructors who will facilitate 
your your learning process by asking you to reflect, asking you to share, asking you to write <clears throat> and talk about and uh, ways you can what talk about what you are learning in the present moment and and then reflect on and write about how you're going to apply what you're learning in the present moment back to your life when you leave when you go home. So it's experiential learning is a full experience, a range of, that includes reflection on, on, on your action experience. A lot of ways to describe it, but that's a pretty good shot. Excellent. So for you personally, John, what is it you love about the outdoors? And do you have any personal adventures or experiences that really shaped your life? <coughs> Growing up in Albany, Georgia, down in South Georgia, which is not too far from Florida, where there's all kind of springs down there, natural springs. And I used to love to explore back in the swampy areas of South Georgia and uncover and find springs. There's sometimes maybe 10 feet diameter, sometimes 20, 30 feet. But there's all kind of springs because the underwater uh, limestone aquifers all over the place in that part of the country. And one of them is is called Radium Springs. It was it was uh, more or less, it was discovered by the by the Creek Indians, I believe it was the Creek Indians, and it was a sacred place for them. In the 1920s, somebody in, in Albany put money into building uh, uh, kind of a beautiful casino and, and closing this spring and ma making a large runoff area down in, into a river that went into the uh, into the Flint River. But the spring itself is called Radium Springs, and it's still there today. And it played a big part in my um, my adventurous my adventurous self, and a big part in my feeling about nature. I ex I explored every square inch of, of Radium Springs. I worked there as a lifeguard. Eventually, by the time I was sixteen, I sold hot dogs. I cleaned the place up with a broom and mop. And I so I, I, all of, many of us growing up there spent our time hanging around Radium Springs. It attracted all of the young people in the town, if you were white. It was not, of course, everything was segregated, so it wasn't open to blacks in those years. There's a big, uh, what we called the boil in, Ra in Radium Springs, and you're deep 35, 40 feet with many 65 gallons or more pouring out of this uh, aquifer, 30, 60, 35, 40, 50 feet deep, dark hole at the bottom, and we explored every square inch of that boil. And, and the experience I can share with you that, that I associate with my, uh, my mystical feelings about nature is I love nothing better than to hang upside down with my mask and fins on about 20 feet down in that boil and just float free as long as I could hold my breath. I felt like I died and gone to heaven and I was, I was supported by the water and it's just free floating experience, kind of like being in the womb again, I guess. And, uh, then, of course, I explored all of that, and I used to take, get a lot of money out of that boil because people spilled it all the time with money coming out of their swimming suits when they dove in. And, of course, some people would throw money in there for good luck. Good luck, And I knew there was a lot of money down at the bottom of that boil. We all knew that. And in our spare time, we pulled a lot of money in there to buy hot dogs and drinks and ice cream at the, at the concession stand. Uh, one time I invented a... Uh, a, a, a gizmo to go down and stay down a long time. This was before uh, uh, the fancy gear that's used today. Uh, uh, I'm blocking the name. What do you call it today when you do underwater diving? Scuba diving, yeah. Way, way before scuba. 
All right. Uh, so I decided that the smart thing to do was to get a 75 foot rubber tube from a hardware store, maybe about three quarters of an inch thick, but with a good air hole going all the way through it, put a valve, a bicycle valve on one end, uh, uh, that, and a, and a, a mouthpiece from a, from a snorkel on the other end. So I put the mouthpiece carefully taped onto that tube in my mouth. And then the other end, I, I had two, uh, two valves on, on a, a big inner tube. I had a second valve put on the inner tube so that you could put one, you could put a bicycle pump on one valve that went into the inner tube and pump air into the inner tube, keep it pumped up. And you could put this long tube with another valve, another uh, screw in place, you know, on that to, to, so that when the, when the bicycle pumped air into the inner tube, it pumped air out through the long 75 foot tube into my mouth. You follow me? Yeah. Yeah. This sounds awesome. All right. So I'm, here I go. Everybody's about a hundred people surrounded to much watch me go down and try out this contraption and, and it worked like a charm. I, you know, took a rock in my hands and sank down to the bottom. I had fins on, had a mask on, and I stayed down for thirty minutes or so and I probably came up with ten dollars in Indian head nickels and buffalo buffalo nickels, Indian head pennies and Russian coins and quarters and fifty cent pieces and silver dollars, everything that people had thrown in there. I'm just sitting down there wiping my hand over the sand and rocks and putting in a little sack, but I felt all this pressure building up on the, on the face mask. I didn't have enough sense to realize that all I had to do to re- relieve the pressure was exhale through the nose and it would have taken the pressure off. But I, I didn't do that because I was fearful of breaking the seal and I might, and the mask might fill with water. So I just endured the pressure. <laughs> Finally, when I came up after about 30 minutes, I, I took the mask off. I looked up at about a hundred people. They were all, Say, way to go, John. And I was so proud. I stayed down that long and I took the mask off. And they said, Oh my goodness, John, you 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 must your face is bloody. All the blood come around, you know, come to my surface of my face. So I had a little headache for a while, lay down until I recovered. But the look, the main point of the story, if it has one, is that that place gave me an outlet for exploration and adventure of mysterious places. It gave me a sense of uh, sort of a mystic feeling for nature, floating free in that water and feeling at home. And there were many other places around South Georgia like that that I could explore and did explore with my friends. I was never a hunter, but I was always an explorer. We we explored caves and any place that we felt like nobody had ever been much before. Lime sinks, there's all kind of lime sinks down there just inexplicable little cave-ins around in, in, in the swampy areas. So anyway, lots of woods and fields and streams and mysterious places to go. That gave me a, a comfort level and appreciation and a comfort level with uh, nature. But the real, the real uh, connection I made with nature really came when I finally got to the Minnesota Outward Bound School in the Boundary Waters Canoe area at age 25, which is, you know, a pristine wilderness it's just, it's incredibly beautiful and it's basically unblemished. It's a roadless area, thousands and thousands of, uh, thousands of square miles of roadless area and very benign and wonderful, almost nothing there that can harm you and no poison ivy, but a lot of mosquitoes and, uh, and uh, a few other things, but really a pristine wilderness that I felt very at home in. Uh, so that's another long-winded short answer. 
I love it. I, you tell me as many stories as you want. Um, it's, it's, I could sit and listen for days. I remember when you came to Costa Rica the first time, and we we were sitting on the beach, and you grabbed a you grabbed an old coconut, and you said, "Andrew, let's go invent a game." And within minutes, we had this two circles drawn up on the beach, and everybody else joined in, and we played this coconut game for for probably like an hour or two. And uh, I remember you saying something to the effect of, "You know, Andrew." There's always a game somewhere. You just got to figure it out. You remember that? I remember it very well. You remember that I beat you at the game? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't remember that. That's not. <laughs> I don't remember that part. Um, but you yeah, know, that that lesson stuck with me. You know, the a stick, a rock, a coconut, whatever's around. You got. You can entertain yourself for hours, and I. I think that's. That's really relevant right now, especially with so many young people with their faces on screens and not to not to get preachy or anything. But it's it's lost a little bit um, in our society right now, this ability to just sort of create adventure and fun. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I, I, my thought is I, I think you've said it well. And I agree with you. And I'm glad we we. Uh, you know, kind of enjoy that play together. I do feel, you know, to me, being in the wilderness makes you playful. It's hard not to be playful in the wilderness if you're comfortable. The people, I've seen instructors who aren't all that comfortable when they've been out in the wilderness a long time and they fall back too much on rigid control of a group. That's a big, big, big mistake. There has to be reasonable control, but to start preventing things like jumping off rocks or uh, swimming in out of certain places. I mean, you have to allow adventure. You have to shoot some rapids. And there has to be a lot of kick and fun in wilderness experience to get the the juice out of it. Um, I've been in situations where I I had to make a decision in, in way up in the Minnesota and sometimes the Canadian wilderness whether to uh, keep my group, you know, doing things or let them sit and wait while the rain until the winter, until the until it stopped raining or something like that. It's always a mistake to just sit around and uh, let boredom set in. And so I'm a big believer in keeping going, look for challenges, make games, keep it fun and uh, playful and active as you possibly can. I, I recall a story you told me, and I could be, maybe I remember it wrong, but you told me some story about hiking down some railroad tracks and you guys had some problems. You had to make a big decision. Does this ring a bell? Yeah, that's. I was referring to that just then, and there was – there were two crews on what we call an outpost trip. Bob Pay uh, sent me with one group of 10 guys and another, and, and my assistant instructor. And he sent another uh, instructor and assistant instructor with another group. And we traveled way up in the area around Armstrong, uh, Ontario, which is all the way up near this, on a parallel with the, the Georgian, not the Georgian Bay, I forget what the bay is, James Bay, James Bay. It's way up there. And uh, we drove we drove a long time, a day or two, to get there when they deposited us in a little village in Ontario, and we set out the two crews, and we paddled seven or eight days to get to our solo lake, which was Lake Whitewater, a gigantic lake. You can actually find it on some maps. Uh, and... We had a wonderful experience, and then the plan was to come from, after the solo, was to make our way to the Canadian Railroad, where there was a you know, a little uh, railroad stop with a little store, 
and meet there and rendezvous, the two crews each coming from a separate route, rendezvous there at a time certain. And, and when my crew got there, when we got there, the other crew had already arrived a day or two early, and they were camped maybe a few hundred yards away from the uh, railroad building, uh, way out in the boondocks, I mean way out in the wilderness. And, uh, and I, my, my boys were happy, and the morale was good, and they were interacting a little bit with the other guys, and it became apparent that the other instructors were too, too concerned about control of their group, and their group was, I think, claustrophobic. They were, they were probably suffering from either what you might call cabin fever or jungle fever. They were bitching and moaning and griping about everything, including the instructors. And since they, you know, I, had, I, was, I, had my own, I could be my own authority, I just said to myself and to my assistant instructor, let's bring our boys together and figure out how we're going to handle this because the, the train isn't going to come for another 24 hours. We knew that wasn't going to stop there. So we huddled up, and I said to my boys, I said, look, we can either sit here and get jungle fever like these other guys that we see, or we can hit hit the road and uh, hike down this uh, this railroad track and stop at the next point down the road where the train's going to stop. We happen to know that about 17 miles. And, and I said, Look, y'all want to go for it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go for it. So we left our canoes there at that station and, and the other instructor agreed that they would load our canoes on the, on the train when it came there and pick us up down the track 17 miles. So we, we walked all day and, and slept somewhere along the way and then walked the rest of the day until we got to the pickup point. And, you know, it was like, uh, uh, um, what's the famous British movie? Bridge Over the River Choir. We kept them marching. We sang every song. We, we, we whistled and we played rock skipping when we came to a pond. And we laughed and talked, told every story, got to know each other better. Walked down the railroad track 17 miles. Now, you would think, well, that was crazy. You'd just wear them out. The fact is that morale was higher in a kite because it was a real adventure and something, you know, wild and wild and woolly that they could uh, that they could talk about and enjoy remembering and tell, tell friends about. So it became real apparent when we got back to the base camp back in Minnesota and we had a debriefing of both crews. And one crew was really demoralized and had nothing good to say about their whole experience. And the other crew was just fully excited and uh, happy with what we had done. I don't take credit for all of that, but I'll take a little bit. And I think that's a good example. You know, you read about stories like that all the time when, when uh, Shackleton, for example, in, in, in uh, South Pole or North Pole, where he... Antarctica. Yeah, Shackleton, yeah. You know, same thing. I mean, he had to, had to keep his crew busy and doing, doing good things. So that's, that's a, yeah, that's a strong belief of mine that you thrown back on your own resources and you can't depend on uh, artificial things to entertain you and distract you. It's a great lesson. I had a few of those growing up as well that, uh, definitely shaped me also when I was, uh, when I was a river guide in college, I had a few experiences where it's like, well, we got to make it happen with what's here. And, uh, that definitely shaped me as well. You know, um, as an educational consultant, John, what 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 has been your real approach with young people? I know you've worked with young people of many different circumstances, but what do you generally say and do with a young person that's going through a hard time that 
needs to make a big step or a change? How do you approach that conversation? Well, remember, as an education consultant, my primary relationship was with the parents more than it was with the, their sons and daughters, all they had, because I, I usually met with the sons and daughters once or twice. But I still, I can't, I'll take your question. I mean, uh, uh, with, with, when, I, when I talk to young people uh, as an education consultant, um, I basically did the same thing I tried to do in raising my three boys. They're now aged something like 45 to 33. And uh, they're all adventurers of how I order adventurers. But, uh, you know, I... I talked about and, uh, and urged you know, urged them to break the break the uh, to break the pattern that they're locked into to uh, get unstuck, whether regardless of how they were stuck. And of course, in the case of my clients, the sons and daughters of the parents who came to see me, they're stuck for a lot of different reasons, as you well know, young adults as well as teenagers, and and some of them are stuck because of drugs and alcohol. Some are stuck because of of depression and anxiety and, and many other things, mental health issues and behavioral issues of one kind or another. And I found that young people in that in those circumstances, and, and I've, I've had some of my children have been stuck in exactly that same way, which is what brought me into education consulting in the first place because I, I dove into the thera- the therapeutic world, the world of therapeutic schools and programs in order to figure out what to do with some of my own dilemmas with my children. And so what I tried to make, I, tr- I made the case that you need to, in order to get unstuck, you've got to change the environment. You've got to do something different, be somewhere different, meet new people and challenge yourself and break out of the, the stuckness, form some new patterns and habits and put yourself in a situation where you where a lot more, a lot is going to be demanded of you. Where you're going to have to learn how to be honest with yourself, honest with others, honest with your God if you believe in God, honest with um, your team, and you're going to have to dig deep for resources. You have to challenge yourself to grow and learn by by uh, making it a little hard on yourself rather than seeking to escape or escape, seeking an easy way out of your problems. As you well know, Andrew, there, having said all that, 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 that doesn't mean it's easy. There's no quick fix. There's no magic pill. But as we both know, <clears throat> young people who choose to challenge themselves become stronger, more confident, uh, more compassionate usually, more, more respectful of themselves than others over time. And they learn self-reliance and eventually, oftentimes, and at best, it, it becomes a full thing where you become a a fuller, more complete human being, and it has a lot to do with the with getting back to nature and removing yourself from all the distractions and all the influences, and sometimes even the influence of parents that pull that can tend to stunt your growth or pull you down or uh, not pull you forward. Um, so, my approach I, I didn't use as many words as I've used with you. But I, I, in one way or another, when I talk directly to my client, young people, I tried to just ask questions and draw them out and let them come to their own conclusion that they need to do something else. And if you put it right, sometimes you're fortunate and they say, okay, I'm going to do this. Let's go. Let's, let's do it. 
Sometimes it doesn't happen that way. You have to find other ways to get them into a therapeutic framework with the support of the parents. This is a Josh Watson question. Um, is there a specific case that stands out to you more than the rest that had an impact on you or provided you more insight in your career and in your path? Well, there's a lot of dramatic uh, situations that I've been in. I think one of the uh, one of the things you know when you get into this work, you have to. Uh, you have to be willing to walk on uh, hot coals because you're in a lot of very emotional, tense situations that you don't have all the answers for. And I think keeping your humility about that is an important aspect of being a consultant. But to come to your main question, do I have some cases of, of situations that stick out? One that comes to mind, Andrew, is uh, a call came to me from an attorney in New York City, and uh, she wanted to help a 16-year-old girl who was on the streets of New York City and had been on the streets for six to nine months uh, selling herself. And uh, this, this, this lawyer who called me said, uh, um, you know, she's not my daughter, but I'm, the mother and father are both dead, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm taking responsibility for it because I care about her and her family. So she hired me, and... Uh, I didn't go to New York. I simply made the arrangements to get this young woman, 16 years old, with the help of her sister, who happened to have a small, modest apartment in New York City where the 16-year-old the girl was staying when she came home at all. And we, uh, we were able to, the, the transport service was able to uh, pick her up there one, one night, in the middle of the night, and get her to a wilderness program in the south, and that was the beginning of her recovery process. And uh, I, it, that recovery process went on in two different places, two different therapeutic schools, one in uh, North Carolina, one in Tennessee. And the end result was that the girl, she was very, very bright. And she had been traumatized by the loss of both parents and other chaos in her family. There was 12 brothers and sisters. Her father was a truck driver. But this lawyer who hired me, had a, she had a sufficient funds to spend on these therapeutic programs. And the result was a turnaround, rather dramatic. The girl wanted to become a writer, and I have, she's been sending me chapters of her biography and still does. And I make comments and encourage her to keep writing. She settled in Tennessee, but after she got out of that program, she met a young man, a Tennessee boy, a young, young man, and uh, married him. And I went to the wedding some two, three years after I originally had been hired to help her. It was such a dramatic change and a remarkable change. And uh, so that was, that's one that's worth remembering and telling about. Wow. I'm still friends, still friends with her. Wow. That's a great story, mm -hmm. man. Um, another, another question from Josh. He says, you were an educator in the beginning of your career. What, what change of, changes have you noticed in parenting over the last say, 40 years? Well, if I were wiser than a man or maybe a sociologist who's read, about all, read all the books, uh, David Altshuler would probably be the man to talk to. You know David. Yeah. Uh, David writes about these things beautifully. Uh, it's very hard to know what generalizations to make. I, I, think that, I think parents are confused. 
I'm confused. I mean, we live in confusing and troubled times today compared with certainly the 1950s and 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 even closer in to, than that. But you know, this society of ours is much more complex, and the influence of, of peer peer relationships, the influence of of media, cell phones, and uh, social media, and all that has really changed the ball game. And parents find it very difficult to exercise appropriate and effective supervision and control of their children, even at a very young age. And so it's a whole new thing. And and the 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 attitude of you know you can't tell me what to do. I'll tell and the belief that young people come you know come very early now into the belief that they don't need any parental influence, and they don't need to be told what to do or how to do it or what to think and all of that. And uh, when that goes too far, you got some got some problems, counter-authority counter all across the board. Um, but as far as how, how has parenting changed, I, I really frankly don't know what to say. I think parents are scrambling um, the, probably the, to figure things out themselves because the world is complicated now for all of us the, the impact of Technology. This is a complex world to live in, and it is a very fast-paced world. It is increasingly an urban world, and is not an. Is we're we're increasingly disconnected from the natural world. <laughs> what percentage of the kids today grow up on farms? Pretty small percentage, where the learning is often very experiential and responsibility and and having your chores and and being part of a family team, etc. All that is pretty rare today, fading into memory. There are parts of Western North Carolina where that's not true, I'm glad to say. Uh, so I think the, the parent, parents are struggling to figure out how they can be effective in such a complex, distracting society for our, for our young people. And, I, <laughs> you know, I'm almost at a loss of words to say how parenting has changed. I think they, maybe maybe one generalization would be too many parents have given up. That's that, that's one way, one one idea anyway to explore that. How do you avoid giving up when you feel hopeless as a parent? When you feel out of control as a parent, what can you do appropriately and effectively to assert appropriate loving authority and a set and to set appropriate responsible example for your children? Nothing more important than setting that example. You and. If I guess if there would be any message to parents today, it would be look in the mirror, set the example, practice what you preach, walk your talk, and you'll have that. That was that will send a loudest possible message to your child, and uh, get them involved in the community, uh, and and make sure that they know that uh, being a part of a family takes 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 work on everybody's part. Communicate, communicate, communicate. Now, that's a shotgun answer to a very good question, and you better go from here to a sociologist. <laughs> no, I think it's a great answer, you know, and it is a complex world. And, you know, Megan and I talk about this all the time, about what are we going to do with our kids and technology? And then we look at each other and go, what are we going to do with each other and technology? We're both, you know, on our phones way too much. And it it's I don't know that there's a lot of easy answers because it's so – uh, it's there's just this it's this big thread that goes through all of our relationships and the technology is a part of that now unfortunately when we talk about there's a common theme from you and that is that 
nature, right? Getting out into nature, getting out into the outdoors. Obviously, you and I are both all about it, you know, and we've built our careers around facilitating that for people. What, what about the person that's sitting home right now and, you know, they don't need a wilderness program. They're not, they, maybe they can't take a week off for a camp out. What, do you have any like ideas or creative thoughts for somebody just to get more nature and outdoor exposure and adventure into their lives um, on a day to day without, you know, without needing a, a serious intervention? Well, I think I understand your question. I mean, I think that they, if I, assuming I understand what you're getting at, the answer, my, my answer would be all of us who live in this world are doing ourselves a favor by getting outside, getting away from our computer screens, getting away from our cell phones, getting away from television, getting away from social media, and taking long walks in the woods. I happen to live across the street from a beautiful lake, and I don't miss too many days getting out there walking around that lake. It takes about 30 minutes. Sometimes I even, believe it or not, sometimes I even jog. I'm trying to get ready for the senior games in a few months. I don't know if I'll be ready, but wish me luck. What are you going to uh, do? What, what's these, your uh, event? Oh, well, I'm, I'm going to keep it simple. One of them is a, a flat-footed broad jump. There's a, a discus throw, softball throw. Uh, all kind of races. You can race fifth, uh, four. I think it's a forty-yard race. There's certainly a longer races, and there's swimming events. There's there's racquetball. I I won the racquetball championship here in this county last year, and you know, I, I was in the seventy-five to eighty-year-old age bracket, and there was only one other competitor, and I beat him. <laughs> <laughs> so I only had to beat one person to win the championship, but. Look, I think staying in good health and staying fit and staying in touch with outdoors is a, is a spiritual regimen or a spiritual discipline. It feeds the spirit and it uh, keeps you aware of the uh, the beauty that that the beauty that is the natural world, even if it's just a park. Uh, but uh, and it keeps you in touch with the importance of the natural world and the way in which it. It takes care of us, and we we it, we we're dependent on a healthy planet. We're dependent on it for our for our very life, and natural resources, and clean air and clean water. So, stay. I mean, my 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 ethic is encourage people to stay in touch with it any way they're able. Whether you're in a wheelchair, uh, I have a, a, a friend who's about sixty years old who has Parkinson's disease. And she walks around this lake more times than I do every day. And it's served her very well, both because of her health and her attitude. And uh, so everybody can't go on a wilderness trip in northern Canada. Everybody can't climb mountains. And that's okay. I think it's very important for those of us who like that sort of stuff, such as my son, Zachary, who's the head of the Access Fund over in Chattanooga. He climbs he climbs rocks that I could never do anything but look at. And... Uh, uh, it's important for us to realize that we all can make our connection to nature in different ways. I had some part over here in Western North Carolina starting a program called Muddy Sneakers. My youngest son, Nathaniel, came up with that name. And Muddy Sneakers has now taken root in both North and South Carolina in certain counties, which gets fifth graders out of the classroom for part of their class day with their science teachers and sometimes with their social studies and history teachers to go on 
two or three hour uh, wood excursions in the in the woods in this area to do their very to do the work that they would normally do in their classroom. And that's one of the best things I can think of because you get young people, many of the young people growing up around uh, wilderness areas like this one here. We're right on the edge of the Great Smokies and of Pisgah Park, Pisgah uh, National Park, National Forest. Uh, many of these young people growing up here in Western North Carolina have never never seen the woods because of it's stuck to the, stuck to the, the media, the social media, the cell phone, TV, and all that movies. So anyway, I've I've said enough. The, the, the short answer is any way you can get exposure or help people get exposure you, is a, it's a healthy sp uh, uh, spirit feeding experience in any way you can do it. Awesome. I got another question from Josh here. And um, if you feel comfortable sharing, he says, is there a particular time in your life that was really difficult? And what did you do to get through that? Well, you tell Josh, I've got a few questions for him, too. <laughs> uh, well, uh, was sure, I'm in a human being. I'm a human being. I've had plenty of particularly difficult, difficult times in my life. Uh, I don't mind telling you that I came out of a very chaotic family. And my father was a chronic alcoholic, a very sweet man, a chronic alcoholic, so uh, there was other 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 aspects of the chaos in my home. I had two older sisters and a very strong willed and strong mother. And uh, uh, to figure out how to make sense of life, I, I'm I'm very clear in my own mind that I needed a I needed a challenge. I needed a clar I needed clarifying experiences, not just clarifying words, not just clarifying books. Not, I read the Bible cover to cover many times as a young man. I was very religious, and it was helpful. But I, I needed clarifying experience. And there's a big difference. It's the difference between preaching and, 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 and experiencing or hearing preaching and experiencing. So for me, the, the clarifying and stabilizing experience of my life was stumbling into the Minnesota Outward Bound School, which gave me a mission, a purpose, and above all, to answer your question, a sense of clarity about what life can be all about at best, and what human relationships can be about at best. Clarifying experience, when you trim down all the excess superficial stuff and just get to what's really important, earth, wind, and fire, air, warm food, support for each other, uh, a mission, a plan, a purpose, and a determination to reach a destination. How's that sound? And uh, it was great for me. And uh, came. I wish it had come sooner. For some young people, that sort of experience comes through Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, and other experiences. But for me, it came at a time when a lot of people experience identity confusion. And you must be very familiar with that because you work with young adults. And Young adults are striving mightily, by and large, to figure out who in the world they are and where in the world they're going when they become 35 and 45 and beyond. And I was certainly striving to figure myself out and figure my direction out. And for me, the, the, the clarifying experience in, was, was uh, falling in with uh, Outward Bound and experiencing wilderness adventure and the opportunity to teach and learn at the same time as an instructor, the learning was every bit as significant as, as the teaching and, and facilitating was. 
that's another thing. We, as you know, when you instruct and teach and work with kids, you you need to stay in touch with the fact that you yourself are a, a learner. And I'm a big believer in lifetime learning. And uh, so th- those, are, those are a couple of ideas that come to mind in answer to that question. Thank you. So Josh and I are turning 40 this year. And we both... Ag- <laughs> right? And we were both saying, what would you, what advice would you give your 40-year-old self? Or what advice would you give us kind of in the thick of our careers and working with these families and these young people and and any words of wisdom for, for Josh and I? I got words of encouragement. Keep on keeping on. Stay the course. And if you if you recognize at age 40 or so that you have found your way into something that gives meaning and purpose and direction and satisfaction and good good vibes when you go to bed at night, if, it gives it, if it's given that to you in your life, hang on to it, baby. Hang on to it and, and, and keep expanding it and sharing it with others. I, you know, there are a lot of, uh, that's, that's the main message. I mean, you, you all are fortunate because you had the, you had your antenna up to look at the landscape of options. And both of y'all have, have had and would have a lot of different options for career paths. And you've chosen one of the more challenging adventurous and frankly, uh, not necessarily very lucrative uh, prof- professions, but the, the 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 salary is the emotional rewards and the spiritual rewards of the work itself, as you well know. And if you come, to, you get to my age, and then nothing else. What else counts? That's all that counts. You, I mean, I I don't. Who who cares I mean, about anything else other than how you feel inside yourself about what you've chosen to do with your time, with your energy, with your opportunities, and with your relationships. And what else counts? That's it. What else are you going to be able to remember and, and enjoy remembering and write about and uh, write up those memories? You can sit there and count your money if you want to, but it'd get pretty boring. <laughs> she gave out real soon. <laughs> yeah. So I, no, I think the, the happiest people I know are people who've chosen – life of service and adventure and experience and you don't you don't have to do it full time there are all kind of ways to be live a life of adventure and service and meaningful lives uh, in, whether you do it full time like you do or not and uh, I'm sure you've talked to a lot of your clients who say they get so turned on by what they see you doing they say I want to be like you I want to do what you do and you've probably hired some of them already yeah we have we have a few alumni that have come back to guide and help other clients which is cool so well john you're you're semi-retired or fully retired i'd say 99 percent retired and it's hard to say 100 percent because it, you know it's a concept that i've been very slow to embrace i i'm i'm 80 years old and proud of it uh and i'm gonna be proud of being 90 years old and if you and i get back on the beaches of costa rica i'll be proud of beating you good at that game we invented tossing those <laughs> but, uh, and then maybe running two miles or something like that. No, I, I mean, I, I'm, uh, I, I'm, uh, you know, Jesse Quam bought my business and he's running hard with it and doing great. And he's still with, he's calls it John here and associates. And he's honored me by carrying on that title for as long as he wants to. And I, I, he calls and checks in now and then I help him a little bit, but I'm essentially retired and much to my, much to my wife's surprise, I'm, 
I'm waking up every day full of spit and vinegar. I'm really ready to charge every day. I've got a lot of interests, reading, writing, woodworking. I'm working on, I'm learning, I'm taking ukulele lessons, Spanish lessons. We're traveling a lot, bought an RV. We're going down to Natchez Trace uh, in Mississippi in April. We're going to the 50th anniversary uh, occasion of Martin Luther King's 50th anniversary of his assassination in Memphis and then down the Sunday. The uh, Natchez Trace. So she and I are both enjoying these years a, a whole lot. I feel very, very lucky, very blessed, very fortunate to still be healthy and active and to have a lot of friends like you who the work that, that, that you and I are in, the work is, makes you part of an incredible community of wonderful people. As you well know, you and Josh are some of my best friends. Uh, I, I'm, I'm very excited about retirement. And, of course, I went about 25 years longer than my colleagues from Davidson College. They used to stand up at the 20th reunions and brag about they were retiring that year. And I said, I just shake my head and say, well, good luck. I, I'm not joining you this year. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I, I really appreciate your, uh, your youthful spirit. And um, I hope that RV shows up on my uh, in my driveway in Costa Rica someday. You got an open invite for that and you know my my only regret working with you is that I didn't get enough time. Um you know you retired too fast for me and I, <laughs> so I I I demand to see you at least once a year, maybe show up at one of these conferences where we get to catch up with you because I I don't think I've had a conversation with you that I didn't just absolutely enjoy. And, and love. And, and well, it's, it's a real, real pleasure to know you and to be your friend. And uh, I've got a suggestion. Invite me down to Costa Rica to do a, a safety review or a program review. And we'll be there. Deal. <laughs> we'll, we'll cross that, that uh, river or ride those, uh, ride those uh, mules up into that waterfall again at Pure Life. That's a wonderful program you've got, Andrew. And I'm I'm really uh, excited for the success you're experiencing and leadership you're bringing to it. Keep up the good work, my man. All right. Thanks a lot, John. I appreciate your time and always a pleasure, my friend. Keep, keep your sense of humor and that'll carry you a long way and I'll see you later. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, guys. It's me again. Before you cut off, just a personal plug. If you are enjoying the podcast, if you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear more, um, please subscribe on iTunes and or recommend it to friends or family that you think might be interested in what we're talking about. And um, comment. Let me know your thoughts. If you enjoyed something, uh, be specific and let me know what, you, what you're liking and or if you'd like to hear more of something specific. Um, I'm having a blast doing this. I'm learning a ton. And I hope that you are too, if you're along for the ride. So anyway, give me some insight and, and let me know uh, how I can make things better and continue to improve what I'm doing and, and continue to provide something worthwhile. So thanks for joining. Have a good day.